Now, he goes on, he does this for six surrounding nations. Now, think about, if you're in Israel at this point, you're like, I like this guy. I'm a big fan of Amos. He's looking at all the surrounding nations around Israel, and he's telling, look at how bad they are. God will judge them. Oh, yeah, come on, Amos, preach it, brother. Oh, look at that one. Look at how bad they are. Oh, yeah, come on, Amos, preach it, brother. And they go down and down, and then it gets to Judah, the southern kingdom, who they're like kissing cousins. They didn't really like them that much. The northern kingdom didn't like the southern kingdom because they had a civil war, and they broke off, even though they're related. They don't like each other. I guess that's not kissing cousins. I guess. <laughs> that's something else. Okay, so then it gets here, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke my punishment. Now they're really cheering. Now they're happy, clappy, happy, clappy. Yeah, get that southern kingdom. Destroy them. Maybe just take their land. They're excited that God is going to judge the injustices of the southern kingdom of Judah. Come on, Amos. I love it. And then, uh-oh. Looks like maybe he set us up. Verse 6, chapter 2. Then he turns his attention to the northern kingdom, to Israel. He says, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel. Wait, wait, excuse me? Israel? I thought we were talking about all the things all these other people had done wrong. He says, I will not revoke my punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now here's what's so interesting. What he's saying here is that the rich in Israel would go to the poor and give them a loan so that they could go buy garments to keep themselves alive. And then the rich would return to those people and recall the loan and said, pay up. And those poor could not pay, so they'd take the garment and they say, oh yeah, and also the fee for that loan, I'm taking your wine too. You see the injustice? And that will be a theme throughout Amos. The way that the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, who are supposed to be God's people, treated the lowly, the down and out, the poor, is despicable to God. It's despicable. And He will not have it. He will not allow it. And so look, look again at back to chapter 1. I want to just point this out. Verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. This imagery of a lion is not friendly. The lion was the most feared, ferocious, and deadly beast of this uh, ancient Near East. And so when, it's, when Amos says the Lord is like a lion, it's that he cares deeply and he will devour those who do not repent. That's the message of Amos. And it's scary. It's scary. 
because I think we'll start to see a little bit of ourselves in the people of Israel. A little bit of ourselves. And we'll say, wait, wait, hold up. Those people are unjust. Those people are unjust. Wait, you're talking to us too? And the Lord will roar against our injustice. Our injustice. Sometimes it can be hard to, 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 to put yourself in the place. What was it like when these prophets would come to a town and deliver some very scary, powerful oracles? And one of the things we see again and again in Amos is when Amos brings uh, the message of fire will be flooding down upon the people, just like water flows through a river, the, the judgment, the fire of God will come against the unjust people of Israel. It says that the people will wail and mourn and cry out. What is that like? What would that be like? Well, in the providence of God, I was sent a video from my three-and-a-half-year-old son's preschool teacher. She sends us videos and pictures sometime, and she sent me a perfect video that explains what it will be like. So would you play that video for us here, Nate? This is amazing. Here we go. Oh, no. We don't have, a, we don't have the sound plugged in, do we? Okay. What you, what, you can't, what you can't hear. Can we plug that sound in or not? Okay. You know what? We're going to move on from that. Here's what you would have experienced. Grayson saying, flood, flood, and his teacher, or he's saying, flood of fire, as he's throwing, <laughs> as he's throwing the water, flood of fire, flood of fire, and I promise you, I was not reading him Amos for a bedtime story, flood of fire, and then there's this girl in the background, and it's fantastic, and she just sits on that tire and screams at the top of her lungs, a blood-curdling scream, and I said, that's the message of Amos. <laughs> fire that floods down. It's a beautiful video. Maybe I'll post it online so you can watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Flood of, yeah, let the justice roll, brother. Yeah. Now look at this girl. See, she's screaming. Yeah, there she is. She's got an amazing set of pipes on her. The, the girl polka dot hat. Okay. So, Now here's what's interesting. Turn, turn with me to chapter 7. Turn with me to chapter 7. This is such an interest. So how did the people respond to Amos? Look at chapter 7, verse 10. Um, this is interesting because Grayson is the son, maybe the son of a prophet, but, but Amos was not. And he, he says this much here. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, that's sort of a temple in the northern kingdom, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Hey, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, that's another word for prophet, go flee away from the land of to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Get out of the northern kingdom. Stop telling us everything bad that's going to happen to us. We don't want you here. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for in it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of his kingdom. You see how mixed up things had gotten in their religion. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, 
nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following my flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And so here's such an interesting uh, encounter. Uh, Amos had come into the northern kingdom, and he prophesied against the injustices that he saw there, and they said, go away. We don't want you here. This is another prophet telling him, another priest telling him, get out of our land. We've got this. We don't like all these negative things that you're saying about us. And, and one of the things that Amos says is, listen, I'm no professional prophet. We've said this the last couple of weeks. There was groups of people who had the professional title of prophet, but Amos is actually just a farmer. He's just like an, he's like an apple farmer from the south who has come across. It's like somebody coming from Wenatchee who's just an apple farmer who comes to Seattle and begins to prophesy against the injustices that they see here, saying the Lord has given them a message. This is part of why I love Amos. I feel like I was like Amos. I was a businessman. I was in accounting. I had no desire. I had no dreams of being a pastor. I was content in my career. I was content to raise my family. I was content to just be a part of the church of God. And then, if you know my story, God abruptly changed everything and gave me a message and said, go to the people and ask them to consider who I am. I love that part of Amos. With all the prophets, we don't have a lot of their backstory. With Amos, we do. Just a farmer. Who, who knows which of you God might give a message to take to the people? You don't have to be a professional prophet or the son of a prophet, Amos says. You could just be an apple farmer. You might be called to go and speak against the injustices that you see in our city. Okay, so what were, what were the primary nature of Israel's sin? What was the primary nature of Israel's sin? Now, we've already said the way that they treated the poor. So primarily, Amos' message is focused at those who live in excess. There was a group of wealthy in the land of Israel, who just continued to accumulate for themselves wealth upon wealth and wealth, and they did it at the expense of the poor and the underclass. We see that in five, chapter 5, verse 11, he talks about unfair taxation. We see in 5.12, 5, it talks about taking bribes. Here we have a people who have come to power and excess, and they've done it on the backs of the poor and the underclass. And Amos says, God will judge that. Look at chapter 6 with me real quick. Look at chapter 6. It says this, woe, verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations. This is who Amos is talking to, the powerful and the elite those who have the resources for influence, but yet turned a blind eye to those in need. Look at six, chapter 6, verse 3. O you who put far away the day of disaster, 
and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, the finest of meats. Who sing idle songs to the sounds of the harp like David, they invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls, a cup's not even enough, we got to get a bowl to drink our wine and anoint themselves with the finest oils and perfume, but who are not grieved over the ruin, the injustice of Joseph. Another way of saying the land of Israel, the people of Israel as a whole. Do you see it? Do you see the picture that's coming out? Everybody taking for themselves whatever they can get their hands at and not even thinking about the others who are going without. Do you think God cares about justice? Do you think he cares about the injustice that he sees? God says he will bring ruin upon these people who turn their eye, who build up their wealth at the expense of the poor and the underclass. Um, Has anybody seen the movie Green Book? Great. (laughs) Okay, great movie, by the way. it is a movie about uh, Dr. Don Shirley, who's a world-class African-American pianist, um, and it, it, it's about a time in his career where he purposefully embarks on a concert tour in the Deep South. This is 1962, and he needs a driver, so he recruits uh, Tony Lip, who's this Italian-American uh, sort of bouncer type of guy from his neighborhood in the Bronx and he brings him with him and they they tour along in the south and I think it points at this picture really really well uh, because what was happening is uh, these southern um, folks at the time very wealthy affluent would bring in this world-class pianist and they would put on these private concerts and they would listen to to Don Shirley an African-American man play for them beautiful music and they would drink their wine, and they would enjoy it. But, the movie, movie so poignantly points it out, but they would not let him eat in the same room as them. They would come, hear his wonderful music, and hear his virtuoso talent, and, and, and yet, he could not eat in the same room. You see the hypocrisy? This is what's happening in the time of Amos. People are turning their blind eye to the injustices that are right before them. And God says, enough is enough. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Actually, start in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here's, here's Here's what God is saying. Israel, I chose you from amongst all the nations. I made you my special people. And because of the great responsibility that comes from the great calling... I will bring upon you great consequence. It's one thing to not be my people 
and to serve injustice and to serve excess and to turn a blind eye to injustice. But it's a whole nother thing when you are my people. That's us. That's the church of the living God. He has given us a great calling. He's invited us into his family. And with that has come great responsibility. And so when we do even the same things that our neighbors might do and turn our blind eye to injustice and seek ourselves and not the other, great are the consequences that come with. God takes it extremely personally. Extremely personally when we fail to live up to our calling as representatives of him. In 422, he'll say this. He'll make oaths of punishment. He'll say, by his holiness, he, he has sworn to take you away like a fish hook. Punishment. 6.8, he says, by himself he has sworn, I hate the pride of Jacob and will deliver it up I abhor, I am repulsed by you. Punishment. 8.7 says, the Lord has sworn I will never forget any of their deeds. You think God cares about injustice? He takes it personal. He takes it personal when his people do not live out the justice that is in himself. So now turn with me to chapter 5, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. And in chapter 5, we find these same themes over and over and over again. But I want us to jump down now to verse 18. It says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. If you're here with us last week, we talked about in Joel, the day of the Lord, the judgment day of the Lord. And in one sense, for those of us who have a right relationship with God, it's a day where God will come and, and do what he's promised to do. He'll put things back right again. He'll judge evil and punish evil. And what Amos is saying to you, woe to you who desire this day. He's saying, if you desire this day, Israel, you're wrong. Because this day is not a day of light for you. It's a day of darkness because you have not turned away from injustice to justice, but you have turned a blind eye. He says this, why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and then a bear met him. Or went into a, and then and he got away from the bear, it says, and then he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness in it? Basically he's saying for you who have not repented of your sin, you should not long for this day. And then he goes on, verse 21, he says, I hate, see how personal? I hate, I despise your feasts, your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. This is the other part of the sin of Israel. They would go and do all the things that God's people were supposed to do. They'd go and they'd give sacrifices to God and, and they'd give 
a tithe, a tenth of everything that they had. They'd give it back to the Lord. They'd assemble together. They'd sing songs to God. They'd do all the things that God's people are supposed to do, yet their hearts were anything but for God's justice. The hypocrisy would take your breath away. Verse 24, God says this, instead of all that religiousness, instead of just doing, going through the motions and doing the things you know that you're supposed to do because that's what the law says, instead of that, he says, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever an ever-flowing stream. What he's saying is, more than acting the part of a godly person, he wants you to actually be a godly person. So to understand, if we're like Israel, or if we're like God, we have to ask the question, what is justice? What is righteousness? If we are to enact the flowing down of justice and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, what is justice? What is righteousness? Um, the two words used here in the Hebrew, the first uh, that I'll mention is righteousness, actually mean, is related to right relationships, okay? Right relationships. So equity despite social difference. That's what he's calling for. Equity despite social differences. There will always be social differences, but we must have equity. That's right relationships. And the second word there is justice. And justice is relating to the concrete actions that must be taken to correct the injustice, or you could put it this way, to put the relationships back right again. Okay? So they're related. Righteousness and justice are always related. Turn with me very quickly here to chapter 7. Verse 7 says this. This is what he showed me. This is Amos talking about a vision he had from the Lord. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And, and I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now this idea of the plumb line, it's like a, it, there's a string and a weight connected at the end of the stream, and you'd set it next to, say you're building a brick wall. And so it'll tell you what, if the wall is straight or not. So you build the wall along the plumb line to make sure that it's straight. Because if you build a crooked house, the chances of it falling over go up greatly. So that, that's the metaphor that he's using. And here's how it's related to, to justice and righteousness. Justice is not a thing that we make up ourselves. Justice is God's standard. It's God's plumb line. It's God's law. That's what God is telling. He said, I have given you the plumb line. I've given you the standard. I've given you the definition of justice. And so to live justly is when we make the reality of our life, that's communal, relational, individual life, when we match that up with the plumb line or the design for life that God has infused everything with. That is justice. 
And with that justice, every person gets what they deserve, and every action gets what it deserves. That's justice. So when the daily and the momentary lives of God's people, the image bearers of God, when those lives sync up with God's law, that is justice. That's like perfect pitch. Like you've done it exactly right. That's what God is calling us to. Everything is as it should be, and God wants it to be. That's righteousness and justice. Now to get there, something must be done, right? Because when we're honest, we look out and we say, we are not lined up with the standard of God. So justice also, when it says, let justice roll down like a river, is also relating to the correcting actions necessary to put things back right again. So justice has the connotation of judgment, punishment, cleansing. One of my favorite days of the week is garbage day. <laughs> Do you guys love garbage day? Maybe it's just when you have kids and diapers and things like that. It's a beautiful day when we set the garbage out there and the garbage man takes away the garbage and it feels like, ah, I can breathe again. <laughs> Maybe I have a spending problem. I don't know. It's a beautiful day. But it always hurts to make crooked paths straight. Justice always costs something. Justice always includes pain. If you break your arm, you could leave it broken and it will always be broken for the rest of your life. If you truly want it to function as it was designed to function, you have to reset it. And that's painful. But it'll allow it to function as it's meant to be. That's justice. So how do we make justice as God's people roll down like river? How do we live out Amos 5.24? How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, the first thing, we must love justice and hate injustice. Look at 5.15. Amos says the same thing. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It begins with the heart. We must, when we see injustice, be like God and it must break our heart. We must be disgusted when we see injustice in our world. And we must love justice. We must love when we see things functioning as God has designed them to function. So we love justice and hate injustice. That's the first step. The second step is we must live justly. We must treat all of God's creation as equally deserving of love and friendship and care, giving them the necessities that they need for life. That is to live justly. We must have our lives in sync with God's law. That is to live justly. Our realities must match our design. That's all a part of letting justice roll down like river. And finally, we must act against injustice. Let me read for you Martin Luther King Jr. in his quote, or in, in his letter to, from a Birmingham jail. He says this, We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls on the wheels of inevitability. 
It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without his hard work, without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do good or to do right. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy and transform our pending national elegy, that's funeral lament, into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. We must act. It is not enough just to see injustice and to despise it. It's not even enough just to, in our personal lives, live as best we can according to the law and standard of God. We must also see and correct injustice to the measure that we are able. We must punish it. We must clear it out of the life of our society and in our personal lives. We must eradicate discrimination and racism and poverty, all forms of oppression. We must fix our court systems. We must do it all. How in the world do we do this? And I just want to show you that I don't know. And it tears me up. And it tears Pastor Ryan up. As we were talking about this this week, I just want to read, because I just want to be honest with you guys. Where in the world did that go? Maybe I'm not supposed to be honest. There it is. We had an email going back and forth. How do we do this? We feel lost. When we see the injustices, and there's injustice we don't even see. How do we see the injustice, and what do we do? This is an email Ryan sent back to me after watching that MLK video uh, that I sent out. He said this. He said, am I a moderate white? Meaning, am I one of those people who just said, hey, let's not ruffle the feathers. Let's wait. If you read through the letters in the Bur- from a Birmingham jail, that's who Martin Luther King is writing to. Pastors, church leaders who just said, hey, let's slow down. He said, yikes. I think this is the notion that Amos was confronting. The attitude of sure justice would be good, but not if it costs me anything. We should wait. And then Ryan said, what are the areas of justice in the 21st century Seattle Christians are called to? Then I replied to his email and I said, I felt the same way after listening. Are we the moderate white Christians? And then what am I trying to figure out for my sermon? I'm trying to figure out how do we stop being that? And I said, I don't want to just protest to protest. What would Martin Luther King be doing today? Ryan replied to my email. Yeah, the beauty in it is that Martin Luther King was articulating how the gospel was tied to justice in a real way. So much so that the line gets fuzzy between Bible and context. Justice applications should cost people something. What would cost us something if we stood up for it today? I don't know, Ryan said. I think I've made too comfortable of life for myself. And then he said this. I think my inability to answer the question means I haven't been taking this issue seriously enough which demands repentance in and of itself. It's probably the first step. 
acknowledging there is injustice. Walking out repentance would look like tangibly looking at it, listening to it, and feeling out for the voices crying out for justice in our society. And then, and then he said, grrr. <laughs> That's his lament. How do we do this? And then he said, dang, minor prophets are really going to make my life unpleasant for my flesh, but energizing for my spirit. And I read that to you just to say, I, I can preach a sermon like this and I can say, rah, rah, do it, but, but, but I'm like you. We're in this together. What does this look like for us? Are we those that are just sitting back and saying, you know, I hope, hope that gets fixed. How do we enter into this? We need each other to figure this out. We need to ask hard questions of each other. We need to try things together. We need to be creative like Martin Luther King says. And I think when we do all these things, when we live justly and we hate injustice and we correct injustice, when we do all these things, it's a beautiful picture that we have painted for us by Amos, which says this, but let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But look at what he had just said in verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melodies of your harps, I will not listen. And I, I picked this up from living in Colorado. I, I grew up in Washington, so I was a, I was a, an ocean and a lake guy. And then when I moved to Colorado, I became a river guy. And one of the things I love about the river is the music that it plays. As the water rolls down, it, it makes this symphony. And I think that's the picture that we have here. When all of God's people live justly, hate injustice, correct injustice, it becomes like this symphony that God hears like a, rivering, a flowing river, and it's beautiful to his ears. And he delights in the sound of that river flowing down as justice from every corner of his God's green earth begins to flow like a never-ending stream. That's, I think, the picture. And how do we do it? How do we do it? It's a question we just have to keep wrestling with again and again and again. But I do want to say this before we're done with our time of teaching. As we engage in social justice, as we crush and wipe out injustices that we see, we must not forget this. That is not what saves us. You are not saved by your works of justice. Your works of justice are worship unto God. You are not saved by your works of justice. This is so key and it gets so lost in our society where people are getting it backwards. They're thinking by enacting social justice, then, of course, God would be happy with them and save them. No, God has already saved us and therefore we seek to be like God who is himself the standard of justice and live as he has designed us to live. Look at what Paul says in Romans 3, 20 to 27. It says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes only knowledge of sin, only through the plumb line do we see how far, how crooked we actually are. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Next slide. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, 
All have been unjust. All have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. There was, this was to show God's righteousness, not our own, because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. He has waited to bring upon His flood of judgment due to injustice. He has waited for this time it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is so important to remember as we engage in acts of justice and correcting injustice and loving justice and hating injustice. As we do this, we must remember that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And here's how it's related. Because all of your injustice, and your injustice is great, greater than you even know, all of your injustice, for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, is somehow supernaturally transposed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And on that day, the flood of God's justice was poured out against injustice on the person of Jesus. That's the message of the gospel that that river and that flood was poured out in a way like it never will be before and is the only thing strong enough to cleanse us of our sin. We must never forget that even as we embark upon Amos' call to live for justice in this world. James Two says this, faith without works is dead. And what he means by this is that any faith in Jesus Christ that will actually save you is a faith that will inevitably do the works of God. It doesn't mean that works will save you. It means that a faith that saves you that is truly clinging to the grace of God in Jesus Christ will inevitably produce in its attendance manifestable pieces of God's character, like justice and mercy and peace and compassion and kindness. That's the kind of faith that saves. And so we ask ourselves both of these questions today. Do we think that our acts of justice are going to save us? The answer is no. Do we have a kind of faith that does work for justice. If we do, then we know we're connected to the true source of life and we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our own. This is such a challenging, challenging book of the Bible. Eight and a half chapters of a call to justice and God bringing his judgment against injustice and then half of a chapter of hope the very end of Amos. There is hope, my friends, because God does care about injustice. He cares about it so deeply. Not just their injustice, not just the injustice of the world, but the injustice of my heart and of your heart. He cares about it so much that he would not let us go our own way. And he came into the world and he took upon himself the judgment due 
the justice due for our sin. And when we turn to him in faith, we find ourselves not naked and exposed, but clothed with his righteousness so that we might go into the world and let justice flow like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's pray. Father God, we <clears throat> confess to you that we are Israel, that we have loved our excess and our things and our pleasures more than we have loved justice. God, that at times we just go through the motions and do the things that we think Christians are supposed to do. We go to church and we read our Bible and we sing songs and we call ourselves Christians. But if we're honest, our hearts are not bent towards the poor and the needy. Our hearts are not longing for justice. Our hearts are indifferent at best or evil at worst, God. And we pray, we confess that we need your cleansing flood in our life. We fall upon the grace and the mercy and your kindness shown to us in Jesus Christ. We hide underneath him because we know we cannot stand up to the torrent that's due our own sin. And God, we thank you that you give us new righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ, that we might live our days here and forevermore clothed in his righteousness and his goodness. Help us take that and be ministers of justice in this city. To the glory of Christ. Amen.